0: Well, good morning, Chapel family. <clears throat> it has been a, a, a heavy weekend as we have grieved the loss of, of Dennis. He, he really was a quiet, low-key, and very, very faithful guy. And he's just going to be missed by, by a lot of people. And so, uh, as Pastor Ted said, uh, we just ask you to pray this week specifically for, for his family, for the kids that he volunteered with uh, on Thursday nights, through our trail life ministry, and, uh, and then for that young woman um, who uh, unfortunately was, uh, was at the wheel when this happened. Uh, they could all use your prayers. I, I couldn't help thinking this is one of those times when the promise of Easter is just so precious, isn't it? Death does not have the final word. Thank God for that. Well, I want to welcome you to the sixth and final Sunday of Lent. Uh, this is... For really Christians around the world, this really marks uh, entering into the most sacred week of the year, it's called the Holy Week. And uh, this is the day that we commemorate the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Uh, It's sometimes called Palm Sunday because there were a lot of people who were waving one of the national symbols of Israel which was a palm branch in the air to welcome Jesus into town. Little did they know what was about to happen over the next seven days. So this is, this is a really important week, and I hope that it's really significant to you in your own spiritual life. So we've been doing this series for the season of Lent called Lead Me to the Cross because we believe that every part of the Bible ultimately is about Jesus, especially about his cross and his resurrection. So each week during the series, we've been going to a different Old Testament passage and asking the question, okay, how can this passage, even, even though it was written centuries BC, how can it tell me more? How can it teach me more about the cross? And then how can I respond to that with my life? So today we come to, I would say one of the most rich, powerful passages in the entire Bible, Isaiah chapter 53. Um, Isaiah can be intimidating. First of all, it's huge, 66 chapters long, but you you can actually roughly divide the book of Isaiah into two parts. Chapters 1 to 39 are all about God's judgment that's coming, and then chapters 40 through 66 are all about his comfort that's going to come after the judgment. So roughly speaking, the first half is bad news, second half is good news. And in that second good news half, Isaiah introduces us to this mysterious character called the servant of the Lord. Never identifies who that is, but he talks about him a lot. The first time he brings him up is in uh, Isaiah 42 verse one. Here's what God says about him. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. So this is obviously a really important player in God's plan. In fact, there are four extended passages in that second good news part of Isaiah Um, that are all about this servant. Um, Scholars call them the servant songs of Isaiah. And so I'm just gonna actually put those references up on the screen. If any of you wanna do some personal study on this servant of Isaiah, you might wanna jot those down or take a picture of it if you wanna look at it in your small group. But the longest one and the most famous one is that last one. And the passage we're gonna look at today, Isaiah 53, is actually part of that final servant song of Isaiah. This chapter of the Bible for a lot of people, this is the, cha- this is the reason they follow Jesus Christ. That, I mean, I, I want to I emphasize how critical this chapter of the... Isaiah 53, for many people, that's how they came to know the Lord. That for, including a lot of uh, ethnically Jewish people. Today, we're going to look at a non-Jewish person who came to a relationship with Christ through this chap- chapter of the Bible. I mean, it's that powerful. So, let's take a look at it together. Isaiah chapter 53... to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord make his life an offering for sins, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. So I would like to begin talking about the servant's description. What do these verses tell us about this servant, and how could that maybe provide us clues as to who this might be? So I see three main things in the description. First thing, really clear, his rejection. Whoever this person is, he would experience a lot of rejection. And part of that is just because he would be so outwardly unimpressive. Verse 2 says that he would be like a root coming up out of dry ground. If you were walking across a dry field and you saw a little root coming up, would you pull out your phone and take pictures of it? Whoa. No, it's not a flower, right? It's not a majestic oak tree. It's a little root. You would just walk right past it. God seems to have this preference for using outwardly unimpressive people. You ever notice that, the way God works? Like he, he doesn't normally choose the best educated, wealthiest, best looking people from the most healthy families, many times just the opposite. I, I was thinking about when the prophet Samuel came to anoint David as king of Israel, David was still just a little, little runt, the youngest kid in his family. And the prophet says to the family, you know, God doesn't look at people the way man looks at people. Man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. And so there's nothing in the outward appearance of this mysterious servant that would be impressive. And so that's part of the reason he'd be rejected. Everyone would just say, well, there's nothing special about this guy. Like a little root growing out of dry ground. But also, he would be rejected because of his suffering. People like leaders who are strong and commanding, alpha dogs. But it seems like this servant would not be like that at all. Verse three says, he'd be a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Not just an occasional nick or bruise, like he'd be familiar with it. It would be part of his, his character, suffering. To most people, that just looks weak. I mean, who wants to follow a weak, suffering kind of leader? So it says he'll be despised and held in low esteem. So whoever this servant is, the overall response people would have to him is, hmm, no thanks, not interested. If they even noticed him at all, rejected. Secondly, it talks about his sacrifice, his sacrifice. Verses four through seven describe this servant willingly sacrificing himself for the good of others. We like to think that if we were given the opportunity, we would do the same thing, right? We would step in. And we take the bullet for somebody else. The reality is, human behavior teaches us, we usually don't. Some of you heard the story back in in January, there was this TV meteorologist, TV weatherman named Adam Klotz, remember this story? He had been out at a bar in New York watching the Eagles-Giants playoff game, and then he was on his way back home on the subway, it was about 1.30 in the morning by that time, and across from him on the subway, there was this elderly gentleman sitting and this group of teenagers was harassing him. And he was kind of watching this out of the corner of his eye until one of the kids uh, lit the old man's beard on fire. And this guy just had to speak up. He said, hey, you can't treat him like that. And then they turned on him. And they started to beat him up. As soon as the train stopped, he got off and he switched trains. They followed him and beat him almost unconscious. Thank God he survived it. And he was actually on some news programs the next morning. But he said, you know, while this was happening, over the course of like 25 minutes of getting beat up, He said there were dozens and dozens of people who saw it happening and not a single person stepped in. And he said, I can see why. Look what happens when you try to step in. We like to think that we would step in at a time like that. The reality is many times we don't. It's dangerous. We can get hurt. We could get killed. And very often we're unwilling to take that risk. This servant would step in. In fact, it says he won't just suffer for an innocent person like the guy on the subway. He would actually suffer for guilty people. Verse 5 says, he was pierced for our transgressions. That means bad stuff, by the way. That he would be crushed for our iniquities. So this this servant would be willing to be punished for somebody else's crimes. And by the way, when he does that, um, he won't demand his rights. He won't organize a protest movement. Verse 7 says, he'll be as quiet as a lamb being led to the slaughter. Strange thing, right? But as a result of that, look at the second part of verse five. It says, the punishment that brought us, what does it say? That brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we get healed. So because of this person's sacrifice in place of the people who deserve it, those people will receive peace and healing. All because of this suffering servant. Who who is this person? So it talks about his rejection, talks about his sacrifice, and then one more thing, it talks about his triumph. Verse 11 says, after he has suffered, he'll see the light of life and be satisfied. So after he goes through this period of, of terrible things, somehow there's going to be some kind of a, of a turnaround, right? Some kind of a comeback. He will see the light of life. Verse 10 says, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. So remember, he starts out being rejected by people, right? People are like turning their faces away in horror, but, but eventually, he'll actually have offspring. He'll have all these people that come from him, descendants that come from him. So this final servant song of Isaiah, it starts off really rough, but it kind of ends in, in victory. So this mysterious servant of the Lord will be rejected, He'll sacrifice himself for others, and ultimately, he will triumph. It's worth noting something. When you look at Hebrew poetry, it tends to be put together different from the way English poetry is. Normally, in an English poetry, the most important thing, like the, the, the payoff, the, the climax of the whole thing comes at the end, right? Not for the Hebrews. Hebrew poetry would very often put the most important thing smack in the middle, right in the very center of the poem. So when you look at the final servant song of Isaiah, which actually started in the previous chapter, chapter 52, verse 13, the verse right dead center in the whole thing is Isaiah 53, five. Here's what it says. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. So think about it. In the Holy Spirit inspired mind of Isaiah, The single most important thing about this servant was the fact that he would step in and take the place of guilty people and be pierced and wounded and crushed so they could have peace. And the obvious question is, who is this talking about? Point number two, the servant's identity. The servant's identity. If you were to go out today and talk to a Jewish rabbi and ask him about what he thinks about Isaiah 53, I'm 99% sure that he would say, the suffering servant of Isaiah is actually not a person, it's talking about the nation of Israel. And so they point to the suffering of the Jewish people they've gone through over the years, and they say, that's what this is describing. That this is symbolic language, it's personifying the nation and talking about all the suffering that they went through. Now, it's true that the nation of Israel has been through horrific suffering over the years, but it's, very, it's a stretch to me to make that interpretation work um, because you have the suffering, the nation suffering in place of the nation, which, which it, it, it doesn't add up to me. And I genuinely believe that when you read Isaiah 53 with an open mind, you have to work really hard to avoid the obvious conclusion. In the New Testament book of Acts chapter 8, There is a story of an African man from Ethiopia. He's actually an important government official of the nation of Ethiopia. And he has traveled all the way from Ethiopia, eastern central Africa, all the way to Jerusalem because he's spiritually seeking. And he thinks the Jewish people may have some answers for him. So he's on his way back from the the Jewish temple. He's riding in his chariot. And one of the early Christian leaders named Philip sees him. And it's, it's kind of a funny scene. Philip sees the chariot and he starts running alongside the chariot. And he looks up at the guy and he, and he notices that he's reading from the prophet Isaiah while he's going along. And so Philip says to him, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy very humbly says, how could I understand it unless someone explains it to me? So he invites Philip up into the chariot and it says, Philip realized this is the passage he was reading. Here's what this guy was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He was reading Isaiah 53. And so the guy says, tell me, who's the prophet talking about, himself or somebody else? And Acts 8.35 says this, then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. It's Jesus, in case anyone hadn't figured it out already. He's the piece that makes the whole puzzle make sense. I mean, doesn't that just leap from the page when you read this? I mean, keep in mind, Isaiah was written like 700 years before Christ was born. But the prophecy, the details are staggering. It says he grew up like a root from dry ground. Nothing impressive in his appearance, right? Jesus was born to a poor family, raised in a backwoods town called Nazareth. No education, no money, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. It says he was a man of sorrow and familiar with pain. Jesus was betrayed by his good friend. He was denied by one of his best friends. He was slandered, misunderstood, tortured, rejected, a man of sorrows. Isaiah said that people would hide their faces from him. After the beating Jesus took from the Roman guards, his face was so disfigured, people must have turned away in horror. It says he would be pierced, which is such a specific word, isn't it? The Hebrew word literally means to break the surface of something and come out on the other side. And on the cross, the hands and the feet of Jesus were pierced through by iron nails. Isaiah said the servant would be oppressed, which means treated unfairly. And at every one of Jesus' trials before Pilate and Herod and Annas and Caiaphas, he was denied due process of the law and unjustly condemned. All through that, Jesus didn't cry out, or complain, which amazed his captors. There was one moment where Pontius Pilate gets so frustrated and he says, do you refuse to answer me? Don't you realize I have the power to either crucify you or free you? And Jesus very calmly says, you would have no power at all if it weren't granted to you from above. Like a sheep being led to its shearer, he was quiet, amazingly quiet. And just like the servant of Isaiah, after he suffered would see the light of life, on the third day, Jesus walked out of his grave alive. And we're going to celebrate that next week. Believe me. From beginning to end, Isaiah 53 specifically points to the rejection and the sacrifice and the triumph of Jesus Christ. It just couldn't be clearer. Some, someone has said, even if you put his name in Isaiah 53, it wouldn't really make it any clearer because it's so obvious it's him. And that leads to the final point, the servant's life-changing power. How does this affect us? How do we respond to this? Well, for the Ethiopian guy in the chariot, his eyes were just opened. Uh, This is a painting I want to show you by the Dutch painter uh, Albert Coip depicting this scene. a beautiful painting. So he realizes that the spiritual hunger that drove him to Jerusalem looking for answers has led him unmistakably to Jesus Christ right? And so he's all in, and they're going along in the chariot, and he sees a little pond of water, and he says to Philip, hey, water, any reason you can't baptize me right now? And Philip says, well, you have to go through the class at the chapel and give your video and stuff. (laughs) So so Philip says, no reason at all. And they get down off the chariot, and right there, Philip baptizes him in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this man goes back to Ethiopia, absolutely transformed by Christ. And Over time, since then, countless people have followed in those footsteps because Isaiah 53 has led them to the cross. It is an amazing passage. And the most amazing part about it, the central thing that changes your life is that very middle, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. If you will let that become personal, It will melt your heart and it will change you and and you'll be able to handle anything in life. In his teaching on this passage, Tim Keller brings up a scene from the famous Charles Dickens novel, A Tale of Two Cities. And it's such a great, great story. I wanna share that with you today. So A Tale of Two Cities is the story of these two guys, Charles and Sydney, and they're both in love with the same girl, Lucy. And Lucy chooses Charles, so Sydney is out of luck, Charles gets the girl, they get married, they have a family, but this is the time of the French Revolution. And pretty soon Charles gets arrested by the French government for suspicion of, of you know, sedition against the government. They put him in prison, he's sentenced to death by the guillotine. So the night before his execution, Sidney, the other guy who didn't get the girl, who by the way looks a lot like Charles, gets access to Charles's prison cell. And he comes in and he sees Charles. Charles says, what are you doing here? And he says, look, you've got a wife. You've got a child. Let's trade places. Let's switch places. Charles says, you're crazy. It'll never work. We're both going to get killed. Get out of here. But Sidney is not to be deterred. And he winds up drugging his friend and knocking him out, (laughs) switching clothes with him. And then he has somebody carry out the unconscious Charles while he stays in the prison cell. The next day, they're on their way to their execution, this big group of people on the way their execution. And there's this other character that gets introduced. She's this little seamstress woman, about 20 years old, very meek woman. She's also been sentenced to die. And she knew Charles from before all this. And so she goes up to Charles as they're walking down the street, and she starts asking him questions. You remember this? You remember that? And, of course, it's Sydney, not Charles, so he doesn't know the answers, and he's trying to kind of avoid her questions. And then all of a sudden, she realizes It's not Charles at all. And she looks at him and she says, are you dying for him? And Sidney says, shh, yes. And for his wife and children. And this seamstress woman says, I don't know how I'm going to handle anything that's about to happen, but I feel like if I can hold the hand of someone who is so brave and so generous that I'm going to be okay. Can I take your hand? And he says, yes. And they walk hand in hand down the road and it's just one of the most powerful scenes in all of literature because I think it taps into something so deep in the human spirit and it's the fact that when we face the hardest things of life, we don't want to be alone and we draw strength from the strong people around us, don't we? And so for her to hold the hand of someone who was giving his life for another person, it filled her with a courage and a peace and a confidence that was like nothing she had ever known. And he wasn't even dying for her. He was dying for somebody else. Can you imagine if it would even be more powerful if he was dying for her? I can't imagine. And you know what? We don't have to imagine. <laughs> because the suffering servant died for you. He was crushed for your transgressions, he was pierced for your iniquities. And I'm telling you, if you will take his hand, he will fill you with a courage and a confidence and a peace unlike anything you've ever experienced. You will be able to handle anything in life because Isaiah 53, this epic chapter of the Bible, leads us directly to the cross of Christ. So listen, (laughs) if you find yourself breaking the commands of God, and feeling so guilty like Adam and Eve that you wanna just hide from God. He is the covering that God provides to cover your shame. It's Jesus. And when you realize that because of your sin, you deserve to die like Isaac was supposed to die, he is the ram that Jehovah Jireh provides to die in your place. Guys, it's Jesus. And when you're being mistreated like Joseph was and you feel like there's so many rocks in your backpack that you can barely even stand, he is the greater Joseph who was raised from the pit and who takes all the wrongs done to you even though they were meant for evil and he turns them for good. Guys, it's Jesus. And when you are enslaved to an addiction or to a habit or something that's got its grips on you, he is the Passover lamb whose blood gets put over the doorway to your heart and who frees you from slavery. It is Jesus. And when you feel like you're grumbling and you're complaining and you're sinning against God has given you terrible consequences in your life and it feels like venom in your soul, he is the bronze serpent that gets raised up on the pole. Look at him in faith and you will be healed. And when you are facing the hardest things in life, and some of you I know are facing them right now, He is the suffering servant who was pierced and crushed for you. And with him holding your hand, you can face anything. Guys, the whole thing is about Jesus. Amen? Amen. I mean, it's just all about him. And this week, this holy week, I'm just praying and hoping that you will experience him and see him more clearly than you've ever seen him before. He's the hero of the story. I mean, he is the lover of your soul. So come to him, trust him, walk with him, worship him. He is worthy. Would you rise for a prayer? Pray with me, please. God, we just stand in awe. of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. That suffering servant who willingly gave himself for us. Lord, we say as a congregation, thank you for Jesus. And I pray that this week, Lord, we would know at a deeper level what it means to hold the hand of Jesus Christ. And that because of that, Lord, we will face with courage and peace anything we have to face. Father, help us to walk out of here holding that hand and representing Jesus Christ really well to this world that so desperately needs him. Go with us now, we pray, Lord, in the name of Christ. Amen.